0: Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. Following Florence Guild, conversation was recorded live at Work Club Sydney, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Dom Price, the team doctor and head of R and D at Atlassian, the Australian tech company that breaks the mold. In part one, Dom talked about high-performing teams and innovation, the buzzword of the day. He explained how corporate cultures do not promote innovation or success. In part two, Dom continues to talk about corporate cultures and diversity, growing and scaling a business, and how it all ties into innovation and high-performing teams. Getting out of the way of innovation, a Florence Guild conversation with Dom Price.
1: We were having a chat before about scaling versus growing. Um, I have the same angst with evolution versus transformation. So any company going through transformation programs, just like they make me want to cry Um, because transformation suggests you have an end state, you get there and you stop. Whereas I think every company and organization in the world right now is constantly evolving and evolution is different than transformation. Right, best practice, love that. Nothing nothing I can squash more than a best practice. Um, So the, the, the idea around scaling is what is the purpose of what we're trying to achieve and how do, we, how, do we, how do we acquire muscle, competent skills to move in that conscious direction? And conscious direction means that you understand the trade-offs, because there's always a trade-off. Growing is different, because when you grow, you grow regardless. Right? This, this is growing. Right? But scaling is, is often in your mind or your heart. Right? And so if you look at organizations, uh, the, the example uh, I like to give, there's a few organizations I've been working with that are like... Um, we want to be a 20,000-person organisation. I'm like, oh, cool. Why? Like, what, what's a 20,000-person organisation? There's no impact in there. There's no getting better at what you do. I was like, if you could have 10,000 people and deliver the same outcome, would you do that? And they're like, well, yeah, but we can't. So we're just going to grow by adding people. And they're like, well, that, that's, got no, that's got no intended outcome. There's no purpose to that. And so for us, what we try and do is to say... If we let scale first, grow second. So scale says, imagine you're constrained by the number of people. How can we get better at what we do with the ingredients we've got? That's scaling. That's how you work. And then you do that up until a point, and then you're like, now I need to add a person. But when you add that person, they add more impact than the last. Versus most organisations go, we're, we're running at a certain percent capacity or certain percent utilisation, and you add one more person, but you don't feel like you add any more bandwidth. So I'm a firm believer, uh, you may have read the Mythical Man Month. I have to get my teeth in for that. Mythical Man Month basically says if you add more people to a, to a, a project, a complex project, you slow it down. You don't speed it up. And so that's where growing organizations get weird because they get bloated. They, they add hierarchy. They add layers. And so you feel busy in a growing organization, but you never feel more effective. Like I, I am as effective now at 2,500 people as I was at 600. But that's because I don't care how many people there actually are. That's a byproduct of our organization. It's not a goal. We don't have a goal to get to a certain number of people. We want to delight our customers every single day. We want to, we want to acquire more customers and deliver more value. We want to have impact on society. We want to use our foundation, for good. Right? We want to do all those things. But we're not measuring this like, have we grown? Right? Have we got bigger? Because bigger isn't better. Certainly in organizations. I like to think about bureaucracy and hierarchy and process in the same vein. And I like to remind myself that none of them are ever created by a business. They're only ever created by people. So so where someone goes, ah, my organization's rubbish at this. Ah, my organization's got too much process. I'm like, oh, cool. That was a person. Organizations don't create process. People do. My organization's really bureaucratic and hierarchical. Well, a leader made that decision. So for us, the first way to do it is to prevent it from happening by hiring the right people. People that live our values and and, want to help scale our business. Second way is be abundantly aware of every time you're making a decision or doing something, you are making a conscious trade-off. And we have some of the best arguments and debates around trade-offs, but we have them before we commit the decision. So that's where that cognitive diversity becomes important, where you get those different-minded people going, I politely disagree. We talk about respectful dissent. We encourage respectful dissent. Having those arguments up front are way better than doing a post-implementation review where you sit there and go, I don't like the org chart anymore. Well, it's too late. You're probably six, nine, 12 months down the line. You've already baked a whole lot of things in. So we try and front load that and have the hard discussions early in how we build teams, how we build organizational design. We have an org chart that I could probably find if I searched for it. Our work, our communication channels are not defined by our org chart. Most organisations I go to, they are. If you want to get something done, you go up. And that person goes up and goes up and goes up. And then it goes across and then it comes down. And by the time it reaches you, it bears no resemblance and mean you never had a conversation. Our communication, I would say 80% of it occurs laterally. It is free to occur peer-to-peer. Because it's you that I'm actually working with and you that I'm working with. So why should I come to use my boss to go to him, to go to him, to come across to you? And by the time it gets to you, it's useless. So a lot of it is in the practices that we run. The fact that we have 420 small autonomous teams means that we care more about who we work with and less about who we work for. And when you work laterally, when you think about the customer as the outcome, and you work with other teams to achieve that, and you don't care about the hierarchy, you stop creating things that actually reinforce silos and hierarchy, because they're never valuable. They're a comfort blanket. They make you feel better in the short term. They probably give you some confidence or some kind of certainty that doesn't really exist, but they're not real. So we, we, we accept and embrace that friction of working across teams, and we try and give our teams the freedom to do that. And then only where that doesn't work do we escalate up. But that's the, that's the, the exception, not the rule. It's hard. It takes a, you know, I've got a, a small team of people, and, and, and we are the lateral thinkers. right? We are the glue that our role is how do we understand the things that are going to happen in 12 or 18 months' time and build things now to prevent them. So our, our part of our mantra is, how do we respond rather than react? So respond enables us to sit there and go, all right, so uh, in a couple of years, at last thing's going to be this size, this many customers. Here, here's all the things that might change. In that world, what can go wrong? So it's, it's called a pre-mortem. if anyone's done them before. Great fun. Half the room says everything's gone awesome, what went well. The other half of the room says, everything's gone completely wrong. What went wrong? And then we combine that, because we do both. We want to do the amplifying things to make it better, and we want to remove the barriers and blockers that make it worse. We do that for scaling. What are the things that could go wrong? These things. How can we prevent that? The hard thing about prevention, uh, let's imagine that you are a firefighter, and you move into prevention and start doing fire prevention, right? Fireproofing. You can't walk around this building today and pat yourself on the back because there wasn't a fire the thing never happened and so businesses and certainly leaders find prevention really hard to value because it didn't happen <laughs> you're like i stopped someone from leaving today and you're like no you didn't i mean no no one no one's left at Lassian today so do i get a gold star for retention no because that was going to happen anyway and so when you prevent it gets taken for granted the advantage of firefighting is instant gratification and you can point at it There was a fire, i put it out, I'd like a bottle of wine and a uh, a staff trophy for the week. And so for scaling, part of our role is we're not here uh, for the plaudits, we're here to demonstrate value. And I'm going to do that by building things today that the organisation needs tomorrow. Um, Planting seeds, which is what it is, needs very different measures of success to chopping down trees. So, if the majority of your organization are foresters and their job is to chop down trees efficiently and effectively don't put the same measures on the person planting seeds and that's what most organizations do they try and have a standard set of measures it's just like when someone goes dom i've got an innovation program and i'm struggling to measure the return on investment and i'm like good because there isn't one you should just do it because it's the right thing to do like if you're trying to measure the incremental dollar so innovation isn't about incremental dollar, that's execution. Innovation is about redu- reduction of risk and, and learning. That's an investment. And so if you, if you focus too much on the return, you actually miss the point of the investment. It's a weird one, right? If, if you don't sleep tonight, you'll function tomorrow. You'll survive, right? But you do that on repeat and eventually you're not going to be very well. And so it's this, it's this weird thing that we, 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 we just love certainty in business, and I, and I get why. right? I, I understand the science behind it. But innovation says, screw the business we're in, let's look at the industry. The industry is inherently uncertain. Competition coming from everywhere. We can't even imagine half the place it comes from. Our customers demand more and more year on year at a lower price. right? So I'm screwed there, so I'm going to squeeze my margins and deliver more features and a better product. Okay. With more competition, okay, that's hurting my head. And now more customers, so I need to scale my business, so I need to grow internally. And If you're not innovating, your other option is to stand still, which is, I don't think, even a slow death. I think it's probably quite a fast death. Um, You've just got to look at the banks right now, who for years were like, we don't need to innovate. We're the incumbents. We're we're future-proof. We're foolproof, who now are kind of going, I'm not sure we're as future-proof as we thought. And the scary thing is... We're reacting to that now, right? So when you react to innovation, really weird things happen. Um, the most, the weirdest thing that I see happen when you react to innovation happening around you is the fast follower. Uh, anyone who's a fast follower, I applaud you. Uh, you're a slow follower. Because like, fast following doesn't exist. Because by the time the other person's got it out, they're actually 18 months ahead of you because the amount of research and development they did and dog fooding and customer experimentation, by the time you see it and you go, we're going to follow that, you're like, first of all, you don't know the art that went into it. And what you're going to try and copy, by the time you copy it and launch it, is absorbed and saturated and they've already moved on. So instead of trying to copy them, why don't you leapfrog them and like, throw everything out of the basket? So the, the best innovation models I've seen recently are constraint-based innovation. When you go, you have no money. So we, we, have a, we have a game we play called Disrupt, where we get teams to put ideas, post-it notes, ideas on a whiteboard. And then you've got these cards. They're like cards against humanity, uh, but for dorky engineers, right? And so you turn a card and it says, great idea, but you have no money. But you can hire people. What are you going to do? And you're like, ooh, okay. So they, they, they change the post-it notes, they move them around. Then you turn the next card and it says, you've just found out a competitor's going to launch this in three months. What are you going to do? Those constraints bring in the creativity. And these genius ideas come out that you would never have thought of. And so when you go down that path, it's cool. The problem is the majority of organizations I speak to, when they're thinking about innovation, are in high-margin businesses where they think they're immune. And actually, the only reason they're innovating is someone on the board said to. So it ends up being a PowerPoint slide or a poster or, at worst, a T-shirt Uh, You end up with an innovation room, innovation lab, innovation person, whatever, a mouse mat. Depends how archaic you are. But you never actually innovate because there's no desire to. There's no reason. There's no purpose. There's no why. Whereas when you see the existential threats as they are and you add constraints, you're like, oh, we better move fast. We better be creative with this because we've only got one shot. And so if you look, some of the the best innovators are either the ones that aren't constrained by your business. So the new businesses, new business models, they're Mar and Pastor, for you, for us, the guy and the girl in a garage with a laptop who are gonna create the next tech company. I can keep my eyes on Microsoft and Facebook, but I can't watch the two kids in a, in a garage. So when you understand the existential threat, you get a little bit more maverick and you realize that no one's gonna die with your experiment. So you might as well just give it a go and listen and learn or sit a whole lot of people in a boardroom to debate it and then run a focus group and not do it anyway. And so it's that weird trade off about going, like your customers want you to innovate One of the mistakes we made a few years ago was thinking that innovation was listening to our customers and adding all their requests onto a backlog. I mean, we placated them for a while, but you deliver mediocrity at best. Our customers don't pay us to deliver features that they ask for. They pay us to build things for the future that they don't even realize they need yet. Right. Just like the the Model T Ford. Right. No one was asking for an extra horse or a faster horse. Right. The, The iteration wasn't another horse. It was a car. The the iterations on the candle didn't invent the light bulb. And so we've got to understand the job to be done and then go, how could that be done if this product didn't exist? Or if we only had a few months? Or if we had this existential threat? And when you have that constraint-based innovation and you leave it to the people that are the SMEs and not the senior-most leaders, when you let the, the, the people speak, that's when you get amazing ideas that then often get squashed by their senior leaders. But if you give them the freedom and just let them nurture them and treat them like seeds and not like trees, then that's where true innovation comes from. Look at Netflix. Netflix started as a DVD business. Um, In in the year 2000, Netflix tried to sell themselves to blockbusters. Um, Blockbusters in the year 2000 made $800 million from late fees. So that's us hiring Gladiator, the number one hit that year, and returning it late and paying a late fee. $800 million in late fees. So they had an opportunity that year to buy Netflix for $50 million, and they laughed them out of the room because no one was going to buy this business where you go online, pick a DVD that comes in the mail that you watch, DVD plays for $1,500, no one was going to buy Netflix. So they laughed them out of the room. A few years later, blockbusters went bust. Netflix is now a $12 billion business. But Netflix isn't the same business that tried to sell itself for $50 million, right? They started off as DVD rentals online. They then evolved to streaming. They have now evolved to content generation, right? They are constantly evolving what they do because they see the existential threat as not being, is it DVDs or videos, but they see themselves in the business of providing entertainment. And they know that there are many other sources of entertainment. And so I think that's a good example to us that if you don't see the existential threat, it will come and take you. Like in two, I think it was 2002, Blockbuster's actually listed it. In, the, in that year, it was listed as one of the most successful IPOs a few years later, non-existent. Blockbuster's peak revenue was $6 billion. Netflix's is now twelve, right? And so they just took a business model and disrupted it in a way that Blockbuster's even couldn't, not only could they not see it, but even when they tried to sell it to them, couldn't see it, let alone innovating themselves. right? 13,000 empty bricks and mortar stores. So I think that the threat is real. The decision we have to make as leaders is whether we see it or not. And, and when you take short-term time horizons on your decisions, you will very rarely see it because it's not going to happen this quarter. It's not going to happen this year, but it will happen. And so there's examples of you know, BlackBerry and iPhone. Right? There's examples of all over the world of technology where people went, ah, that'll never take off. And then it did. Right? And so I think we, we have to look at our business models, our people, our leaders, uh, understand the job to be done for the product or service that we, we make or sell and, and understand that that threat's real. we just got to accept it and then choose to do something about it. And that, that for me is where, why I really enjoy my job because I spend more time doing stuff about it than I do ruminating, uh, sat in a boardroom thinking about it. Like we, we spend an amount of time thinking and then we go, that was some cute analysis, not going to determine what happens in the real world. Let's go and do it and try it and learn from trying uh, rather than proving I suppose we've got an advantage with, with Scott and Mike as two founders who have only ever worked at Atlassian. They started Atlassian out of college, out of university. Their desire at the time was, we don't want to get a job at IBM or Ernst or Young because all our mates are going and getting those jobs, buying suits. They worked out that their friends would earn $43,000 a year in those jobs. So they set each other a goal. If we can work for ourselves, wear our own clothes and then $43,000 a year, that's enough. right? And that was the start. Right? That was it. Um, as it. As it scaled and things happened, they have gone out and got coaches and got mentors and made sure they are supported. They have made sure that all of our leaders understand what it is to be a leader, what it means to be a servant leader, how you develop and, and evolve your leadership style, how you seek constant feedback and use that feedback for good and not for evil. Um, and they exemplify their values every single day, We celebrate the values by recognizing, not rewarding, but by recognizing positive behaviors. We have a system called Kudos. Um, uh, Basically, let's imagine we and you working together. You go above and beyond. I go onto the internet and I I pick you. And when I pick your name, it tells me the things that you like and you like a coffee voucher. So I get you a coffee voucher. I pick the value that you've lived, uh, play as a team, and I write a personal card about the specific thing that you did. And within 24 hours, your gift arrives on your desk with your hand printed card that says, thank you very much for doing this thing. I really like it. Do more of it. What we do then as teams is when we have our team or functional meetings, we'll go around and go, does anyone want to tell a story about a kudos they've given? Not received, a kudos they've given. Who did they give it to and why? We give about, I think, 25,000, 30,000 kudos a year around the world. No approvals. They're all pre-approved. So I go, well, what if someone games the system? What if me and you collude and you give me a coffee voucher and then I give you one in return? I'm like, if that happens, that's fine. I mean, it's a bit silly. <laughs> if you're so desperate to game the company out of a coffee voucher, go for your life. Like, I actually said to someone, what if they sit there all day and look like they're working but they're not? And they're like, yeah. How do you manage that? I said, no. You don't, <laughs> just like people in distributed teams, but you can't guarantee or, or control that, so you have to trust and let go. The QDOS system enables us to recognize positive behaviors, reinforce them, and it propels them and, and pushes them up. Um, similarly, we are pretty prompt on dealing with bad behaviors, and bad behaviors are, are things that we, we can discuss actually at a team level. It's very rare for us that they escalate. Very rare for us that a bad behavior is pushed up the chain of command. It's actually more about how can you solve that in your team? So uh, a a quick example, Uh, we had a team uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, One of their team members didn't look like they were pulling their weight. They were coming in late some days. A few weird things were happening. In a previous organization, that would have been escalated to me. Dom, can you solve that? And it didn't. The team sat the pissing down and said hey, we want to understand, like, what's, what's going on? And he's like, look, i uh, got to be honest, going through a messy divorce, got kids, we're going through this weird sharing arrangement, and so at random times, the kids get dumped on me, and I want to be a good dad, and I'm trying to do this stuff, but it means I missed that, and then I had to leave early for this. And, and he's like, I'm just navigating it, and I'm really sorry, but I'm struggling right now. And they like, like, oh, shit, we're like, what can we do to help? And he's like, oh, I I, never thought of asking. It'd be really good if I could work from home on Wednesdays. I could do this. They found a mechanism for working. A few weeks on, that team is way more high performing. They have trust and respect for each other. That guy is now back in work full time. Feels like he owes the team. There was this trust built from having that conversation. And I never got involved. And so that, for me, is just one of those things where I'm like, if you escalate that to me and I solve it, you never learn that muscle or skill. And so I would say about 80% of our interpersonal challenges are solved by the team saying, hey, we've got this shared goal and I don't think we're going to achieve it. Can we have an honest chat about that? And why and how can we help each other? 80% are solved by that. The weird, quirky 20% get escalated and they're the ones that I can and should get involved in, but it's one a quarter or one every six months, not one every day. So it just changes the dynamic. Um, I don't think there's a specific model we have behind it we have a really strong hr and people team uh, that, that do inspire us and pushes to learn and develop and, and, and evolve we have inspiring leaders that, that tell these stories uh and we we celebrate and recognize our values every single day and i think those things in composite along with hiring for the values just create that momentum it's a weird mix so uh, education um yeah it makes me a little bit sad to be honest um the, the example i'll give you is is if I look at virtually every schooling system that I've seen in Australia and, and any Western society right now, um, if two pupils talk to each other, that's called cheating. And then they join my workforce. I'm like, no, that's collaboration. I'd like you to do more of it. And they're like, oh, no, no, I, I, I work solo. It's where I do my best work. And they're actually taught that the worst projects you can do in, in any tertiary education uh, is the team one. The team one, because I, I have to, every single person I meet is like, I had to do all the work on my team exercise. I'm like, where's the lazy person doing nothing? Where are they hiding? And so I think we need to change. If I I do the analogy, I think most of our education system looks like a factory. And that was fine when we were chilling people out to work in factories. But we're not. Uh, And if you think about the skills that are valuable in the future, the ones that are about being more human, I think we educate a lot of those human skills out of kids, uh, which is a shame because I think they innately have them. And then they're chiselled out, right? They're they're taught that marks are important, and I'm trying to teach them about outcomes and customer satisfaction, all right? They're talking about deadlines, and I'm like, no, no, it's about like how can you measure the impact of what you do? And they're like, do you want it by Friday? I'm like, no, like as long as it does the job, I don't care when it arrives. Like that's weird, right? This professor relationship, the whole model has to change. That said, I I don't necessarily want tertiary education to change so that it, it provides fully formed graduates for me. Because I think part of our job is to take those graduates on the next level of learning, which is always going to be different. Now, I I think the answer is STEAM, which is STEM and art together. I think if we over-focus on STEM, we'll end up with a whole lot of geniuses that can't apply that genius. And if we just focus on arts, we'll have a whole lot of people like me that can tell stories, but have absolutely no substance underneath. So actually, we need the combination of those two together. (laughs) This is is a therapy session, right? (laughs) Um, Safe place. Safe place, safe place, safe place. Um, We we, we need those two together. And and I think when you you get those two together and you get practical experience, like giving giving those people the chance to go and actually practice. Like if I look at, we we take a lot of people on internships in their first, second or third year, where they'll come and do six months with us. The change that occurs to them in those six months is profound. And their their marks go up when they go back because they can understand how to practically apply what they do. This is the ones that haven't done that. And they arrive at our door going, here's the answer, Don. Like, this is the best technology. Trust me. And you're like, why? And they're like, well, it is what I taught. I read it in the book. Like It says on page 17 that's the right thing to do. That, that application isn't there. So that's the, the education one. The AI one is uh, probably one of my favorite topics. Right? So there's, there's essentially two camps out there. If you take LinkedIn as a measure of topics, there's the camp that are like, we are doomed. The world is coming to an end. None of us will have jobs. Uh, Love those people. Uh, Then there's the other ones, which are taking happy pills. And they're like, artificial intelligence robotics automation is amazing, because we're all going to be working four-hour weeks, and we'll be able to have these fulfilling lives and give back to our community. And I love those people as well. Like Whatever they're taking, awesome. (laughs) I I read the four-hour working week about 15 (laughs) years ago. And I'm, I am no nearer to a four-hour working week. Like, not even... I'm going the other direction, right? And so the, the AI thing's an interesting one. So here, here's, here's the logical argument. So uh, statistically, last 144 years, more jobs created by technology than taken away. Cool, easy. Uh, misleading stat, mass displacement, right? And when you look at the displacement, it's fundamentally unfair, right? So if you're in deep Minnesota in a coal mine, and that coal mine closes, and you go, good news, there's some UX jobs in Silicon Valley. <laughs> have you thought about user experience and integration and design? And they're like, no, no. You know, Take Uber drivers, like a largely unskilled workforce that are being attracted to that role right now. When those vehicles become autonomous, what are they going to do? And so I believe, as a society in total, we'll have enough roles because that that change will continue. New roles will get created. It's just going to be fucking unfair. And the sad thing is, when I go to talks about artificial intelligence and impact, it's normally a room like this, and we're fine. We're like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. I'll be all right. Um, And so it's hard for us to empathize. Where my frustration really kicks in is we have at our fingertips amazing examples of the impact and the potential to retrain and we are consciously choosing to ignore them. So my example is Rio Tinto and the Pilbara mine, which for four years has had wholly autonomous vehicles in a giant mine in Western Australia. And so every time someone says to me, oh, I wonder what will happen with autonomous vehicles. I'm like, oh, what if it had already happened? It's already happened. (laughs) Go back 100 years when agriculture was the largest employer and the robot that was going to take your job was a combine harvester. And was like, we're going to be out of work and it'll be the end of society. I think we're doing all right, right? And so new jobs do get created. It's just not always fair. But we've got more data and insights at our fingertips now. And we are doing sod all with it, right? We've got, whether it be government or legislators or business or whoever, going, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. You're like, we'll take Rio Tinto as an example. Look at the jobs that got taken away. Zero drivers now. So all those drivers got displaced, look at the jobs that got created, software engineers, more mechanics and more maintenance people because the vehicles were on the road more, they were producing more, so they needed more of this, more of that, there was a whole lot of things that got added, genius. One of the weird things was they had to relay the roads because autonomous vehicles don't deviate, like as humans we're deviants, so we move the wheel, autonomous per- person doesn't. And so all the trucks were going along the exact same track every single day and dug a big hole in the road. So another job got created, right? That's to work out new road materials. All these things got created. We could take that, extrapolate it to autonomous vehicles, and it wouldn't be an exact match, but it'd be 78% match. But we don't because we sit there and ponder because the people sitting there and pondering are probably the ones that are going to be all right and the ones that aren't haven't got access to that data or the awareness. So I think we have a... I don't know who owns it. It's kind of a magical question. I don't think education is tertiary anymore. I believe education is lifelong. And so the number of roles that we'll need to reinvent there, if you look at the generation coming through university now, they're going to have more jobs than than I'm having and than you probably have, and, and, and so on and so forth. Half of those jobs, by estimate, don't exist right now. So they can't be trained for them now. So we have to have lifelong education, not just for them, but that horrible middle manager, the one who's not old enough to retire yet, and not young enough to be a millennial, who's sat there going, who's doing my reinvention? And so we've got a whole society of people, probably who are signed up for a large amount of debt because they have to, going, I haven't got the job security my parents had, and nor have I got the skills of the next generation. I feel like I'm, I'm the sandwich that's being squeezed. So continual learning needs to come into play. But for that learning to work, we need to know what are the things we need to learn. like What, what is that reskilling and how does it work? And I think we need to, need to use the data and examples out there to draw insights from that and then we all need to take ownership in it. But I, 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 don't, I don't know who is. If anyone's starting like a lifelong learning business, I think you're starting an amazing business. We started small, we experimented, and then we started to share some stories. So the story I'll share with you is something that I tried. Um, I, I learned this from a friend of mine called Sophie Wade, She's based out in New York. Um, and she just read some stuff by a guy called Otto Sharma, I believe is the name, which is the, the U of Unlearning. Like if you don't come down you can't go up and if all you do is the up then you've not done the down that doesn't work either and 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 in in reading that and and looking at some of the things i was doing i became aware of the fact that i was getting really good at adding things and terrible at the taking away now i'm i'm a very um um, i i think if it existed when i was a kid i probably would have been diagnosed with adhd or something equivalent like i have no attention span So like this unlearning thing, if it's not digestible for me, it ain't going to work. Like if I have to take three or six months to do it, I'm bored already. So I found the scrappiest way of doing it, which is the four L's. Loved, longed for, loathed, and learnt. So every quarter, I sit down, I I do this with my team as a team exercise. I actually do it myself as a leader. So what's the thing that happened in the last quarter that I loved? and I own up to that and I celebrate it and I do not give a shit that I celebrate it because I should and I am allowed to enjoy my job and what I do and there is no shame associated with that. And I talk about that because I think generations before us thought work was something you had to be miserable at. In fact, the more miserable you were, clearly the, mo- the harder you were working. And I'm like, no, I enjoy what I do. I don't mind admitting that. And, and I get more enjoyment by finding the things that I love that also add value, caveat, and I do more of them, unashamedly, brilliant. Then I look at the longed-for and the loathed. right? They are, they are connected tissue. So I always want to add in a longed-for. But I'm at capacity. I'm full. I have no time. I have no cognitive bandwidth. I'm just I'm spent. So I'm not allowed to add in a longed-for unless I take out a loathed. It's got to be a one-to-one match. So I look for the loathed. And that's hard, because each time you do that and you take something out, there's less bad things left. So you end up solving first-world problems, like the, the loathed things I take out now aren't broken anymore. They're just not going to pay as high a dividend next quarter as they did last quarter. And then when I take out the loathed, I get to add in a, uh, a long fall. The long fall's scary because I've never done it before. So there's a 50% chance it won't work. <laughs> right? It's not got an ROI. It's not guaranteed. It's not certain. But I actually get a little bit excited because each quarter I get to try something new, and I'm like, right. Fingers crossed this one works, because last quarter's didn't. And that's fine, because that is the gift that gives me the learnt. What did I learn last quarter? And that is the gift I give to my peers. And when I share my learnt, they share theirs. Oh, I tried this thing, and it worked. Or I tried this thing, and it didn't. It's where Fuck Up Fridays came from. Sharing our lessons was, wasn't just the things that weren't. We started to share the things that didn't l- work. And we realized we were learning more from those. And we had to confront the fact that there was a stigma or fear of sharing failures. And so that model of the four Ls enables me to constantly evolve by forcing me to remove things before I add them. Um, At a meta level, about six months ago, one of the things I loathed was the sheer number of meetings in my calendar. And I longed for more time to focus. So I deleted all meetings in my calendar, every single one. Uh, I got one of our techies to do me a little script. And it sent a note with every delete. And it said, there are three options. This meeting shouldn't exist. It is no longer required. Do not add me back in. This meeting should exist, but you don't need me. I'm in there for some kind of weird tactical reason, but you don't need me. A delegate or someone else can attend that meeting. And the third one is, you do need me. Please let me know what I'm accountable for, what I'm responsible for, and what I might contribute to the meeting. The vast majority didn't come back, they were sticks. The vast majority were sticks that went back. The boomerangs that did come back came back with way richer information, but it was less than a third of the meetings came back. We had this realization that meetings exist just because they used to, not for any actual valid reason. And you add up the number of people and the hours and the cost and the tech, and you're like, that's a, like no one's doing the ROI on those. We do ROI on, on innovation, but not on meetings. And so I just called the lot. And so the only ones that got added back in were the ones that I was essential for. They became better meetings because I knew what I was doing. And the freedom of time, I invested in mentoring and coaching because I was pissed off because I wasn't doing anywhere near as much mentoring and coaching as I wanted to because I was stuck in meetings all day, every day. And the only time I had was at night when I was reading and responding to emails. So I called them. So that was a, an unlearning. And, and the weird thing was... It sounds profound, but I didn't actually learn anything new. I just took ownership of my time and kind of said, My time's valuable, and I'm going to unlearn this habit of just accepting meetings. Because the weird byproduct was when people started to add meetings back, I was like, Really? Are you sure? And they're like, No, I'm only, I'm only inviting you because of who you are. And if you're in the room, I can see you're in the room. And that way we can make these weird decisions, and I can blame them on you. I'm like, oh, that's really not a reason for me to be there, is it? And so it enabled me to then just challenge those meetings, challenge that practice and format, which drives its own momentum. Once I did that, the people around me went, oh, that's quite cool. I might try it. And I've told that story now 20 times. So bit by bit, it starts to impact the organization. And at no point does a senior leader send out a policy about meetings or a process about meetings or a procedure about meetings because you don't and shouldn't ever need a procedure or policy for common sense for spending your time. So for me, I've got more momentum by trying it. Um, Every time I'm on a flight, I've got like a a printout of the exec summary of of Otto Sharma's book, and I've got through the first chapter five times. And it's not that it's a bad read. I just have no attention span. So I'm, I'm trying to learn it by doing it. And then once I get a bit better at it, then I think I might go back and read the theory to supplement that. But I think it's, if I I look at the rate of change and this reinvention and evolution, the ability to lose that baggage, I think whoever can do that fastest would be the person that goes, not only acquires new knowledge but has the freedom to apply that new knowledge. That's where the value is. Uh, A lot of of organizations set the bar for innovation, uh, something that I would call mediocrity. And then they celebrate that mediocrity which then reproduces more mediocrity, uh, which is a spiral to averageness. Uh, It's really quite inspiring. Um, You end up with some really sexy compliance regimes at the back end of it. Um, And and, and that's because the bar of awareness, and it's not not malicious, it's the bar of awareness. One of the things that we've done with our innovation program is make sure that the voice of the customer is very present. So we actually have a team who, who are called voice of the customer, Part of their job is a net promoter score, various customer feedback, how do we synthesize and share that so that we are aware of the sentiment of our customers and our users. And when you share that repeatedly and educate people and make them more aware, their radar increases, therefore their knowledge of potential problems or opportunities increase. So one way is we try and break their frame of reference through education, through awareness. the second one is, is we like to manipulate them every now and then. And so um, we, we did something a, a few months ago, a few hackathons ago, where we introduced the unplugged prize for non-technical projects. Um, just having that as a new thing, people are like, oh, what's, what's, this is curious. What's this new thing? I saw, it's said, unplugged prize. Fine. It's like all the others. But for non-technical innovation, like, oh, that's new. Oh, I want to work on the new thing. Everyone wants to work on the new thing. <laughs> So we had a whole lot of technical people working on non-technical stuff and it ended up as this... It was like a a mass recital of Kumbaya by the end of it because everyone sat around the campfire sharing feelings and emotions. I'm like, what have we done here? But it was good because you suddenly tap into the fact that if you're really busy and someone says innovate, you innovate on the thing that is right in front of you. That's not innovation. It's incremental at best or recycled, right? Reduce, reuse, recycle. And so as well as giving them the inspiration and and new ideas for themes and and bringing the customer to the center of it, what we try and do is give them some time to think about it. So one of the things we added about four or five um, events ago. um, So our hackathon is called Ship It. It Happens once a quarter. You get 24 hours to work on whatever you want. In the build-up to Ship It, we have Pitch It, which is like speed dating for awkward people. Um, And so you put the people with ideas that haven't got teams in a room with people that want to work on stuff but haven't got ideas, and you say, mate, but without the mateship, right? And they share. And, and, and so, and this is, this is with no forcing function, with no encouragement, one of the things that's happened now, law of unintended consequences, our team makeup for Ship It, people are now working with people they don't normally work with. They are seeking out people they don't normally work with because they want to have that divergent experience because there is no recourse to getting it wrong. There's huge value for getting it right, no recourse for getting it wrong. And then the last thing we did was we wanted to encourage people to be more maverick because there is no cost of it going wrong. And so we added uh, a new room to our semifinals in Sydney uh, last time, and now we've made this global, and it's called the Titanic Room. <laughs> it's for awesome ideas that sank on their first mission. So what we say to people is don't don't bring your idea back to something doable too early because that's not innovation. So go Maverick, and if you hit an iceberg and sink, please join the room because talking about that, we want to know what you were trying to achieve and why and what did you hit that made you sink and how can we use that to improve the next ship? So instead of hiding those things, we've now elevated them. And there's, there's this weird, almost like badge of honor to now appearing in the Titanic room because it means you took on something so audacious and screwed it up, you feel the need to share it with others. Still no one died, right? our Titanic, no one's, no one's injured. And so we're just trying to encourage, yeah, encourage and recognize people for taking calculated risks and experimenting. Thank you. Explore the Florence Guild
0: podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit FlorenceGuild.com.